Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I am obsessed with Mithras candles. They are the most beautiful beeswax candles I have ever seen, and they're handcrafted in Philadelphia. Mithras candles smell intoxicating, and they look even better with their wizardly dripped pillars. They also come in a variety of other shapes, from pyramids to tapers to tea lights, and they give off a warm and gentle glow. I have tons of Mithras candles, and I can't get enough. And now you can get some too by going to MithrasCandle.com and using offer code WITCH for 10% off your first order of 2019. So go to Mithras Candle, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use code WITCH for 10% off your first order of the year. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave, and happy National Poetry Month. If you've listened to other episodes of the podcast, it's probably become clear that I'm a really big fan of poetry. I love to write it, and I really love to read it. That's because I think of poems as being spells of a sort. Poems have that incantatory quality that feels mesmerizing and transformative. In spells and in poetry, words are used as magic keys to unlock the gates of other realms and shift our consciousness. When I'm doing a spell or even just calling circle to begin a ritual, I try to use language that is rhythmic, evocative, and specific. And the poetry I love is much the same. It helps me make contact with something numinous and holy. It expands my mind and fills my heart up to overflowing. And it reminds me that this world is more peculiar and more precious than meets the eye. Language and enchantment are interlinked. Of course, we have the word spell, which as a verb means to form a word, and as a noun refers to a magical action. Abracadabra allegedly means I create as I speak, and the words grimoire, or spellbook, and grammar have the same etymological root. Writing and speaking have long histories of being considered magical acts. 
humans have long believed that if only we utter the right words or inscribe an amulet or candle with specific phrases, we can infuse the ordinary with new energy and maybe even change the outcome of our lives. The link between poetry and magic is one that many writers have explored. Both Sylvia Plath and James Merrill used Ouija boards to write some of their poems, and poets like Audre Lorde, Lucille Clifton, H.D., Anne Sexton, Helen Adam, Marge Piercy, and Anne Waldman have all drawn parallels between witches and their own identities as female writers. The ecstatic poets, such as Rumi and Hafiz, used their words to conjure and honor the divine. And of course, there's William Blake and Yeats and the Transcendentalists and the Beat Poets, and the list goes on and on. As Margaret Atwood famously wrote in her poem, Spelling, a word after a word after a word is power. On today's episode, I speak with Jonica Stuckey, who is one of the world's great spiritual poets. We discuss the ways in which poetry can elevate and illuminate, and we talk about the magical methods he employs to both write and perform his entrancing poems. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witchwire. Who is it? Wishes. Lisa writes, Hi, Pam. I wanted to thank you for making a program so beautiful that I return to the spiritual practices that I periodically abandon when sorting the information chaff from the information wheat becomes too much. This might be a negative Nancy thing to say, but I feel like there is so much terrible witchy writing, images, content, etc. out there. And when I find myself consuming too much of it, my knee-jerk reaction is to reject spirituality altogether. How can I claim a witchy spirituality when I am so exhausted by the cultural appropriation, sexually toxic rhetoric, and individualistic law of attraction style victim blaming that goes mostly unremarked upon in the community? How can I focus on and find the content that provokes thought? that deepens my relationships with others on the earth, that resists individual mythos and capitalist money-grabbing. Thanks so much. Hey, Lisa. Thank you so much for these very kind words. I'm so happy that you've put this podcast in your wheat category, and I'm delighted that it's helping you reconnect to your spiritual path. I do want to respond to some of your remarks about the witchcraft community and a few of the things that have been rubbing you the wrong way. I actually think that the issues you're addressing happen in every spiritual community. No matter what path you're drawn to, you may come across things that might turn you off or offend you or find elements that might feel contradictory within it. 
You've called out cultural appropriation, sexually toxic rhetoric, victim blaming, and more, all of which are absolutely horrible. But unfortunately, these are things that are not just in the witchcraft community or the spiritual landscape, but they're in society overall. And it's heartbreaking, and it's frustrating, and I don't blame you for feeling fed up with it sometimes. But you get to shape your own spiritual experience, and you get to follow what resonates with you and reject anything that doesn't. So how do you keep away from the chaff and find more of that witchy wheat? You become a detective of mystery and magic and goodness, and you follow the clues. For starters, if you're digging this podcast, well, there's tons of great folks I've had on here who have written books and made music and films and art and teach classes, and each of those people have mentioned other creators and teachers and people that they're fans of, so you could go look those up too. That's honestly a very abbreviated version of how I've come to craft my own spirituality and my own life in general. It means I've forged my own path of inquiry, and I've trusted my instincts when I came across someone's writing or ideas that made me light up inside. Do I sometimes still encounter things I don't agree with or get turned off by a point of view I might find offensive or upsetting? Absolutely. But I don't let that deter me from being in constant search for and celebration of the things that have filled me up and lifted me higher. There is so much magic and goodness and brilliance in this world, and certainly there's a great deal of that good stuff in the witchcraft community specifically. I recommend that you not only keep looking for these clues and following these clues, but that you keep track of them. Start a notebook or a folder on your laptop or your own beautiful book of shadows where you record the revelations and inspirations that you come across as you come across them. That way, in those moments when you do encounter something toxic or something that makes you want to turn away from your spirituality, you can refer to it to keep you on a positive path and to remind yourself that goodness and beauty and love are every bit as real as the bad stuff. Good luck with your continued magical investigations and happy hunting. Now, on to my guest. Jonica Stuckey is a mystic poet, performer, and publisher who incorporates occult practice and imagery into his work. In 2015, Jack White's Third Man Records launched a new publishing imprint, Third Man Books, and they chose Jonica's full-length poetry collection called The Truth Is We Are Perfect, as their inaugural title. This month, Jonica has a new book coming out with Third Man called Ascend, Ascend, which is a full-length ecstatic poem about interfacing with the divine. 
His poems have appeared in such journals as Denver Quarterly, Fence, and North American Review, and his articles have been published by the Huffington Post and the Poetry Foundation. Jonica is a two-time national haiku champion, and in 2010, he was voted Boston's best poet in the Boston Phoenix. Jonica is also the founding editor of Black Ocean and the annual poetry journal, Handsome. On this episode, Jonica and I discuss the links between language and magic, his mystical methods of writing and reciting poetry, and how to translate transcendent experiences into words. Jonica joined me from his home in Boston via Skype. Jonica Stuckey, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thanks, Pam. I'm excited to be here. I'm so glad you're here, Jonica. So I've told you this many times before, but just so the world can hear it, you are one of my very, very favorite poets, <laughs> living or dead. So it is so, so wonderful to get to dive deep with you about your work today. Thank you. That's high praise. Well, I mean it, and you know I mean it. <laughs> but I, I thought by way of introduction to your work that we might actually start by having you read one of my most favorite poems by you or by anyone. This is a poem from your book that came out in 2015 called The Truth Is We Are Perfect, which is the first book of yours that I ever read. Yeah. And the poem in question is called You Are Invisible, Go Visible. You are invisible, go visible. Inside the mouth of the flower remains the second eyelid, true darkness, alien light, resurrecting us slender and thick-skinned from the pool of milk we drown in each morning, from the river of moth dust we float on at night, hand an invisible hand saying, go and be, build your impossible fort full of secret magics, designed to let others in. <sighs> and we can end there. The end. <laughs> Thanks for asking me to read that. I perform a lot. And I actually, for some reason, I don't, that one isn't part of my A-sides when I perform. And so it's nice to read it for an audience. Oh, yeah. The first time I ever read that poem, I was so moved. First of all, Obviously, it's just beautiful from a language standpoint, but that final end, that idea of building a fort of impossible magics, but that yeah. it's designed for others to be part of. I mean, yeah. I, shit, like I want that on my <laughs> tombstone. Like that's kind of like the thesis statement of my life, if you will, that tension between mystery and revelation and solitude and community and all of that. I just think it's so, so moving. So yeah. I'm pleased that I got to hear it from you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Now, this is one of many poems that you've written, most of which seem to me, at least, to come from a tradition of what many people refer to as ecstatic poetry or mm-hmm. visionary poetry. Mm-hmm. And I often think of that as work that essentially tries to translate a divine or transformative experience of the holy and quite paradoxically, perhaps, put it into words. So would you say that that's one of your primary intentions when you're writing? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think of a non-mystic, Susan Sontag. (laughs) (laughs) She says, the only function of literature lies in the uncovering of the self in history. And she goes on to talk about how ordinary language is like accretion of lies. And so literature has to be transgressive and rupture these systems and shatter psychic oppression. And that to me is what I want to do with my poetry. And I do see it as ecstatic poetry or visionary poetry. I I don't think that's necessarily the goal of all poets or all poetry, but poetry and mystical texts or mystical poetry or ecstatic poetry specifically is sort of an exceptional form of literature in this regard, because the mystical experience itself is both conjuring and unifying, you know, it's thaumaturgy and it's theurgy. So it takes the direct experience of the numinous other, however you want to define that. And then it's sort of presupposes this idea of social transformation, this communal transformation, but through personal experience, but at the same time, describing the image of the transformation itself. Mm. So it's both the description of the transformation and the transformation itself. And it's that transport that we cannot speak of. (laughs) So (laughs) when, when I write poems, I'm unattached from the body and unattached from the world, I'm kind of just living in my breath and every moment's kind of passing between each breath and this sort of ecstatic or immortal joy. It feels like when I write poems, I'm a saint. <laughs> <laughs> and only then, you know, trust me, when I'm not writing poems, I'm not a saint. My voice is a little deep right now because I was celebrating my birthday last night and I did not drink like a saint last night. So <laughs> happy birthday. Well, well, I feel like that tension between saintliness or let's say the celestial and the more chthonic or earthbound. I don't know, or maybe even the demonic is definitely a theme that comes through a lot of ecstatic writing. I mean, I'm thinking of poets like everybody from Rumi or Hafiz or Mirabai, but even later writers like William Blake and Yeats and H.D., Allen Ginsberg, Diane De Prima comes to mind. I mean, we can go on and on and on. And sure. to your point, it really does feel like perhaps in their writing of these poems, certainly in the subject matter of the poems, but I would also say as the receiver of the poems, the reader of the poems, it feels like a transformative experience too, like touching the divine somehow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up on the poems of Rumi and Hafiz and Mirabai and uh, Tagore. And I would say that those poets are probably at least at a nascent precognitive level, uh, more influential on me than 
modern or contemporary poets, like some of the other ones you mentioned, Blake or Yeats or mm-hmm. HD or Ginsburg. It's very flattering to be compared to those poets. And you're not the only one who's drawn that line. But I'll be honest, I was reluctant to read, especially the more contemporary ones like Ginsburg and DePrima. They're poets who other people like. So then I was like, oh, I don't want to read them. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I started reading poetry at an early age and I had a kind of a very spiritual upbringing in my family. So the first poets I got hooked on were Novalis and Holderlin and German romantics. Oh, as, I as love well. Novalis. Yeah, yeah. This idea of poets being the disciples of the wild one and messengers of the night and all this stuff. That's what I grew up with pre-adolescent Jonica poet. Amazing. And was it your parents that got you into this or did you discover it more organically than that? It was definitely my parents. My mother's side of the family is Jewish. My father's side of the family is Episcopal, but they met following a guru around the world (laughs) and lived in an ashram in India for a while. And then they opened a meditation center in France. And then my mom got pregnant and then they moved back to the States. And then after I was born, we lived in a few ashrams for the first few years of my life and then continued to go back to ashrams on long weekends and school holidays and summer vacations, things like that. You could say my exposure or my practice in mysticism predated even my interest in poetry. So it was really the mysticism that came first. Wow. And what, I don't know if sect is the right word or tradition (laughs) exactly were you raised in? Was this like a Tantra-based mysticism or was it something else? So it was pretty straightforward sort of like Western yogic tradition. So Kundalini meditation. So there was a large emphasis on sitting in silent meditation for long periods of time, a lot of chanting, and then seva, which is selfless service, like volunteer work, because ashrams are all communally run. You know, everyone who is living there and chanting and meditating are also all the people who are cooking for each other and doing the dishes and all that stuff. So your day starts at like four or five in the morning, you get up and you chant and you meditate and then you have this communal meal and then you do some more meditation and chanting and then you do some afternoon volunteer work and then more meditation and chanting and communal meal and then you go to bed oh wow wow that's um, like super intense for anyone but especially a kid i didn't think it was super fun (laughs) you know i was like (laughs) oh school vacation i get to go do this Mm. but (laughs) but at the same time I experienced some really wild stuff at an early age. I mean, I have memories of being in these large meditation halls at like three or four years old with hundreds of people sitting in silent meditation and people just having these like, in that tradition, they're called Kriyas, but they're basically like these shamanic experiences where people are experiencing a kind of like spiritual psychosis where they're Mm. making animal noises or shouting or crying It can be a little terrifying when you're a kid, but that was like the norm for me (laughs) growing up. So if you think of that as like the baseline and then beyond that, my parents also always made a point of exposing me to all different traditions. So we also went to synagogue. We went to mosques. We also followed a Sufi teacher for a little while. And then we went to various denominations of 
Christian church as well and went and saw Tibetan lamas. So psychic surgeons, really anytime there was like anyone within driving distance that had any sort of divine practice, my parents would try to go there. Oh my goodness. Well, to me, that sounds awesome. But I know that no matter what we're brought up in, as young people, we often rebel against that. Did you ever kind of wander away from mysticism or have some kind of, I don't know, just a moment where you needed a break from it or you rejected it and looked for other things and then came back to it? Or was it always kind of just in your bloodstream? I rejected that specific tradition and that ashram for a number of years. It was a system like any other system. And as a teenager, I sort of got into the punk scene and DIY ethics and kind of fell into the whole no gods, no masters type of thing. But I was still always sort of anarcho-punk and actually partially by virtue of where I grew up, which was sort of like rural northern Massachusetts. There weren't a lot of punks, but there were hippies. So my friends were hippies. I was like this punk with a nine inch mohawk and a dog collar hanging out with these kids who listened to like the Grateful Dead and Fish. But but we could all do we could all do like LSD together and, you know, read all this Huxley and we had that bonding. So yeah. that was kind of how I rebelled. And then in my very early 20s, right after I graduated college, I went to India by myself for a couple months and backpacked around to kind of get the lay of the land and experience that tradition I was raised in firsthand. And that was an interesting experience too. Wow. You know, thinking about punk and Grateful Dead and all of these different, I don't know if you would call them subcultures, but certainly different genres that a lot of teenagers get into. It seems to me like just another flavor of mysticism in that it's like this search for altered consciousness, right? Or occupying an altered state or an awakening of some kind. I mean, do you think that's a fair parallel to draw? Definitely. I think that the mystical experience is the greatest antidote to fundamentalism. It is a kind of spiritual anarchy. It's a radical, personal, direct relationship with the divine that's not mediated by any kind of hierarchy. Yeah. And and so whether you are finding that through art or music or... Witchcraft. Witchcraft, right. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So that is a kind of counterculture. And that, I mean, we'll probably talk a little bit more about this with my book, but this idea of Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. I mean, the Hasids, right, are like some of the most traditional Jews now. But when the Hasidic movement first emerged, it emerged as like this radical rejection of rabbinical Judaism. So it's really interesting how, in that sense, the Young Turks or the New Order becomes the Old Order. Totally, totally. I mean, I often remember because I was raised Jewish, thinking that Jesus was this certain kind of being. And Mm -hmm. as me being an outsider, I always associated him with like this very super, obviously Christian, traditional way of being. And it wasn't until I got older, I was like, oh no, he was a radical. (laughs) Like, Like so many of, to your exact point, so many of the things that we think of as religious or dogmatic or traditional when they first started were a huge rift or rebellion against whatever it came before. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
I want to tell you about Hag Swag, a monthly subscription box geared towards weirdos, witches, hags, and other alternative folk. Once subscribed to Hagswag, you will receive a variety of curated items right to your door, including occult and pagan-inspired products, burnables like incense or cleansing bundles, crystals, accessories, self-care items, and more. Each month's theme has information and magical objects that are useful for both new and experienced witchy individuals and flow with the wheel of the year. Some Hagswag box themes have included ritual, divination, origins, and astral magic, helping practitioners expand their existing knowledge and build their collection of tools and offerings. Containing only cruelty-free, vegan, and gender-neutral items, Hagswag boxes are suitable for hags of all walks of life. And if you use code WITCHWAVE on their website, www.hagswag.ca, you'll get 5% off your first box. So go to hagswag.ca and use code WITCHWAVE for 5% off your first Hagswag box today. Welcome back to the WITCHWAVE. Today I'm speaking with Jonica Stuckey. So Jonica, we were talking about altered states, and I want to get a little bit more insight, if you don't mind sharing, into the ways in which that you're writing your poetry. I believe that you are entering some kind of altered state or heightened consciousness in the methodology of your writing. Is that true? Yeah, it wasn't always true. It is now. (laughs) Um, I would say when I started writing poetry, I was a teenager. And like, I think a lot of people writing poetry, either just for themselves or as a hobby. It was really just a way to process my experience of the world rather than process my experience of the otherworldly, which I think is what it has become. Yeah. And I studied poetry in college, and then I did a graduate degree in poetry. And throughout all of that, I would say my poems maybe were sort of like bordered on the ecstatic sometimes, but they tended to be fairly narrative. And it wasn't until 2008. And I wanted to do National Poetry Writing Month. The idea is you write a poem every day for 30 days, month of April. And I'm not, nor have I ever historically been a prolific poet. So this idea of writing 30 poems in a month, when it maybe usually I wrote like 10 poems a year, (laughs) felt really daunting to me. And I was trying to figure out how am I going to crank this out. And I asked a novelist friend of mine for advice who was a very prolific prose writer. And he just like crank out thousands of words a day. I said, well, you know, what do you do to, to write every day and write so much? And he said, Oh, well, you got to create a ritual for yourself. Mm -hmm. And when he said that, he didn't mean like a magical ritual. <laughs> he just meant like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to like create a schedule. Like I have my coffee at eight and I sit down to write at nine and I don't let myself get up again until 11 or, you know, mm-hmm. like that's what he meant when he said a ritual. In hindsight, I understand that. But when he said ritual to me, based on my background and my upbringing and all these sort of ritualized 
esoteric traditions, I was like, right, a ritual. I need like candles and incense and like drone music. And <laughs> I need to meditate and do all this stuff. And so yes. that's, I took it like very literally when he said, you need a ritual. So I started developing a writing ritual for myself that was a magical ritual where I would like turn out all the lights in the house and I would light candles and light one specific type of incense. I mean, it all became very somatic where it was like I wanted this scent and this setting. And then I wrote and I did write 30 poems in those 30 days and they were unlike any poems I'd ever written before. And I didn't know what I was writing. Like I would do this thing where I would just sit there for 10 minutes and not let myself write anything and really go into meditation. And, you know, I'd been meditating pretty much my whole life. So that was not the hard part for me. But then after about 10 minutes, I would just come out of meditation and start writing and I wouldn't really know where I was going with it. And it would just happen. Probably like a third of the book of my last book, The Truth Is We Are Perfect, that you asked me to read from at the beginning of the show came from that month. And the other thing that was really strange about it was that not only were these unlike any poems I'd written before, but I was married at the time and I started writing about a breakup. I started writing about the destruction of this relationship. And as far as I was concerned, the marriage I was in was, I mean, we had just gotten married. It was like happy marriage. And then like a month after I finished writing these poems, my ex-wife uh, precipitously left, um, mm. like a Dear John letter. Wow. <laughs> and so then not only were these poems something that were unlike anything I had ever written before, but they were prescient in this weird way. Yeah. Did you show <laughs> her the poems at all? Uh, like not, not when I was writing them, no. Yeah. So she saw them after the fact, but... And then from that point on, over the last 10 years or so, have tweaked and refined the ritual from which I write and used it to go deeper and deeper into these altered or trance states when I write. Well, I think this is a good point to start talking about your new work, which is a book length poem called Ascend, Ascend. And this is a piece I mean, I can certainly share some of my thoughts and interpretations of it. And I was very, very honored, Jonica, that you asked me to write the forward for this poem. So I got to know it really, really intimately because I was like, how am I going to do this incredible poem justice? So this is a piece that, to my mind, oh, I mean, gosh, how to start? Here's what I'll say. It's a poem which kind of cycles through the various elements. So there's a section about earth, a section about air and about fire. Maybe about is not even the right <laughs> word, but involving, let's say. Yeah, dwells in. Dwells in. I like that. And the piece as a whole is really, to me, an exploration of ideas of creation and destruction of the union with the divine, and ultimately the obliteration of the self so that one can unite with the sacred or the numinous. I don't know. Am I doing this any justice at all? How do <laughs> no. you describe this work? It is gorgeous, I should also say. 
Thank you. Yeah, you're absolutely doing it justice. And I have to say, that's why I asked you <laughs> to write the introduction. Uh, and I was really honored that you did it. But with this new book, I've been working and living and writing in the sort of world of contemporary poetry for many number of years. And that world has an uneasy relationship, I would say, with the mystical or even like the idea of the divine or the mention of the divine, because it's such an academic world for the most part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been nervous about this book because of that, that uh, how is it going to be received by those people that world? And on a craft level, it's some of the best work I've ever written, if not the best work I've ever written. But I also started thinking about, well, Maybe, you know what, if they're not ready for that or that's not what they're into, maybe this book's not for them. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And that's okay. So I've thought about who the other audiences for this book are. But my previous book, The Truth Is We Are Perfect, that was about, it sort of progressed as this arc throughout the book of losing oneself in another, then losing that other, and then rebuilding oneself in the absence of the other. Mm. And I sort of played with in that book, the other being a romantic other, but also, in a sense, a divine other. And we talked about the Sufi tradition that I was exposed to. And, and I remember you picking up on those nuances and that duality in that book. And that's why I thought you're going to be the right person <laughs> to forward for this book. But Thank so this you. book, I just do away with any idea of the romantic other, <laughs> just like losing oneself in the divine other. And that's what this book is. And I didn't originally set out for it to be this, but it really became an entry in this idea of uh, Hekelot or Makaba Jewish mystical literature, which is unlocking the gates to the heavenly palaces by reciting the name of God. Mm. And I would never be able to persuade my publisher to use that <laughs> as the tagline for the book. <laughs> and it probably isn't the right tagline for a lot of readers, but uh, maybe for the witch wave. Unlocking the gates to the heavenly palaces by reciting the name of God, I think, is essentially what this book ends up doing. So. Gorgeous, gorgeous. That makes me think so much, too, of just the power of language overall, mm -hmm. which kind of gets me back to an earlier point about the paradox of trying to like pin down the ineffable with mm -hmm. words. And yet so much certainly biblical literature is around this idea of language being magical, of it creating the world as you speak it. You know, it makes me think of Adam naming all of the animals and everything in the book of Genesis. I mean, even in Christianity, and this is where I'm a little out of my depths, but I know there's yeah. that phrase like, I am the word and the word is God or something mm -hmm. to that effect, mm -hmm. right? That by knowing the names of things and by uttering them, we are creators and we are yeah divine beings in ourselves. And that theme really comes through in this book as well in Ascend, Ascend. With that, I would love for listeners to hear a little bit of it with the caveat that this is a book length poem. So this is just a little tiny sliver. So the excerpt I'm going to read here occurs about halfway through the book. I've been traveling through each one of the material worlds starting in earth and then air and then crossing the veil and then entering water 
And then the material world of water is also where I encounter these sort of Rilke's terrifying angels. So I'm kind of sinking upwards or descending upwards, and that's what's happening here. I explode in blood sublimely to descend my shadow past the tablet upon which is written the names of beneficent stars. I explode in blood sublimely past jellyfish throbbing blind and endless in their appetite. I explode in blood sublimely here inside the great dream of a carnivorous whale. I explode in blood sublimely, I, the child of matter, perish and build my dwelling as I descend into the resined black sphere of a crab's enormous eye. I explode in blood sublimely, rags of light honeycomb my emerald dying. I explode in blood sublimely, spindle down through a jade of tears. I explode in blood sublimely, free from the terror of my seeking heart. Knives ripening the pith of salt, urchin wool icebergs and the sucker of starfish, cruel harvest of orgies threshing carnations from the glass cage of doves. I explode in blood sublimely, the water all around, spelling my name in the iris of each dazzling halo. I explode in blood sublimely, the night of my blood like wild cherries staining the lips of leviathan angels. Mm, Jonica, thank you. Ah, so gorgeous. And of course, like, now that I'm in the rhythm of your incantatory reading, I'm like, keep going, go for <laughs> hours. Because <laughs> yeah. that's the effect that your poetry in general, but especially this poem really has on me as a reader and as a, a listener, because and we'll talk about your performance in a moment. But mm -hmm. the way you write and the way you read is so incantatory and entrancing. It really feels like a spell is being cast. The rhythms of your work also help. I don't know if it's like my theta waves or something, but I, I yeah. feel my body responding and getting into this really mesmeric state. Is that intentional as well? Absolutely. Yeah. When I started performing that last book, The Truth Is We Are Perfect came out, I was thinking about how am I going to read these poems that were written from this trance state? And the only way that I felt like I could do them justice was by finding a way to go back into that state when I perform them. And that's how I refer to them really as performances or rituals. I want my readings to be initiatory. The most potent magic is performance, <laughs> mm -hmm. whether that's a, you know, initiated by a shaman or a witch or a magician in a chalk drawn circle. It's in that performative moment that our consciousness is altered. And I started experimenting with this sort of variation on a sin eating ritual during some of my performances for that last book and realized that in doing that, I really had to kind of build my both emotional and physical stamina to really effectively and sustainably perform in the way that I wanted to. Um, and, and that's what I'm hoping for, the, for, especially for these performances for this new book. I don't want people to come to a poetry reading. I want people to come to a ritual for personal and collective transformation. 
And that's what I'm hoping for the audience. And I believe that that's what great art does. You talked about the fadeaways and that my actually my graduate thesis, how I really got into this idea of poetry as meditation was that I think if we create something from a certain state of consciousness, that creative act and the product of that, whether that's a painting or a poem or a piece of music, then becomes a vehicle for the audience to be transported back into that state of consciousness. It carries the blueprints for that state of consciousness. And that's what I'm doing when I'm reading. Absolutely. And there's a long tradition of that, too. I should say that the first time that I had the immense privilege of hearing you read or witnessing you perform is I co-organized something called the Occult Humanities Conference at NYU roughly every other year with my dear mm-hmm. friend, Jesse Bransford, who has been on the podcast as well, who's an incredible occult artist himself. And the year that you performed during the conference, Jonica, I had curated an art show called Language of the Birds, Occult and Art, which was essentially a hundred years of occult artists, visual artists primarily, everybody from Leonora Carrington to Kenneth Anger to Harry Smith to Kiki Smith and on and (laughs) on and on. It it was a dream come true. It it was an incredible show. Did such an amazing job. Yeah. Just to be able to go to that gallery exhibit, let alone all the panels I got to attend. But yeah, that was show was amazing. Oh, well, thank you. But I bring it up because we had you do your performance in the gallery space, surrounded by all of these (laughs) called visionary artworks. And then there you were. And people had told me that you're an incredible performer. But I have to say, I wasn't fully prepared for how I would respond. And with all due respect, you're giving really beautiful readings for us today on this podcast. But it is a much more condensed version of what when you're performing. I mean, it's full-throated bellowing. Your eyes are often closed. It is loud and powerful. You sometimes have magical objects and gestures you're doing. And I don't want to give too much else away (laughs) because I don't want to rob people of that first experience or otherwise of getting to witness this. But it really does feel, to your point, like being initiated by a magician. You are in that moment, in this altered state of consciousness. And it is so moving and so beautiful. And I'll use the word sublime in that Mm -hmm. traditional sense of the word, both kind of terrifying and awe-striking to witness someone who, I mean, it, it does sound like getting back to your very early point about some of the things you were witnessing as a child of seeing these people in these altered states of consciousness, like that's how I feel watching you and hearing you when you're reading. So for those listening, if you get a chance to see Jonica perform live, it is unmissable and you will be absolutely (laughs) changed by it for sure. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, when I first started doing those types of performances, I found them utterly exhausting and draining. Like I would be on the verge of tears or retching afterwards Ah. because I was so spent. That's why I said it, you know, I had to find a way to, I think, fortify and protect myself psychically but also physically. And I was able to do that over time. So now when I do those performances, like I'm vibrating by the end, it's still tiring, but 
in a way that like a great workout is tiring or something, mm-hmm. you know, like afterwards I'm glowing and I'm vibrating and I'm happy and I'm, I'm at peace. Like I've had like this in, incredible orgasm with everyone <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> but, um, you talked about people being able to see my performance and with this new book, I'm putting together a sort of a year long intermittent tour behind it. And I'll be doing some in-store book appearances that will kind of be, they will still have some of those elements, but it will be more of a, a reading kind of like what you're hearing today. And then I am doing some very immersive ritualized performances. I'm working with Atlas Obscura to do seven performances in seven cities in these special locations where I'll be performing the book in its entirety. It's about an hour long ritual and that will have kind of everything you're talking about with the magical items and other sort of like somatic elements that I'm working into it. So those are going to be some pretty special events if anyone that's in those cities can make it out. Oh my goodness. I can't wait. I can't wait, Jonica. (laughs) Um, On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Several of you have been asking about how you can support the show, and we're busily brewing up a Patreon page and merch and all kinds of other goodies. More on all of that really, really soon. In the meantime, if you go to our website, witchwavepodcast.com, and click on support, that will lead you to a lovely little landing page where you can donate whatever you wish. I really appreciate all the love and messages you've been sending the Witch Wave, and I'm so very, very grateful to have you along for the ride. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Jonica Stuckey. So, Jonica, we were talking about your incredible performances and how you will be both doing more, I don't know, traditional, I guess you could say, readings of Ascend, Ascend, but also you will be doing your more shamanic performances. Am I correct that you're going to memorize this piece in its entirety, too? (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) I have, like I said, it's about an hour. I mean, it's memorizing a whole book. Yeah. I did a performance down in Nashville a couple months ago as a sort of trial run for the first two sections. It was actually really cool. I got to perform before the band Sleep did this special surprise show. And so like, I'm a big doom metal fan, a stoner metal fan, and (laughs) being able to perform before Sleep was amazing. But I memorized one section of it for that. And it went well, but I realized how difficult (laughs) it's going to be. But what I often find is even when I don't think I have things memorized, once I get into the rhythm of it, my eyes just leave the page. I mean, literally my eyes are rolling back in my head and then they just leave the page and then I'm off and going. So we'll see. Yeah. But there will be some sort of instrumentation and drone auditory elements to these performances as well. So We'll see how it goes. I don't know if I'll memorize the whole book, but probably by the end of the year, I'll memorize. (laughs) It's going to be spectacular no matter what. I am 100% confident of that. Speaking of being in that eyes rolling back in your head kind of state, I'd love to hear a little bit more of the origin story of this piece. How did you come to write it? And what is it about 
this kind of Jewish mystical path or tradition that caused you to want to kind of write in that style or at least allude to some of its imagery? So the story of this book is kind of a strange, circuitous one. I should have probably put the caveat out earlier that I don't consider myself by any means an expert on Jewish mystical literature or Kabbalah mysticism. The way that my exposure to this tradition came about, even though I grew up Jewish, I I think like a lot of Jews, it was more of a cultural Jewish thing. And I wasn't really involved in the religious elements. And even a lot of religious Jews don't have a lot of exposure to that more mystical side. But a number of years ago, I had this really incredible experience vision after smoking DMT. Mm, that'll <laughs> and that'll do it. Do it. Uh, the end <laughs> uh, is my first and only time smoking DMT. And I had this really, it was like pure information is like a pure data dump from the universe too much and too fast to really process. But it came with this sort of like visual perception of this. I don't really know how to describe it, but these like spinning wheels of light that looked like a space station. And I was looking across the universe and I won't go into the details, but months later I was describing it to a friend of mine and he says, sounds like you saw the Merkaba. And I said, what's the Merkaba? And he said, that's the Jewish chariot of God. There's this whole Merkaba literature tradition. And so I went and I read like the seminal work, Ezekiel's vision. And I was like, yeah, that's what I saw. Ezekiel is describing the thing that I saw on DMT. Mm. And I realized that what I saw, I mean, you could call it the Merkaba. You could call it UFO. You could call it Terrence McKenna's Machine Elves. Like it was all those things. And it was really because I'm Jewish and I'm interested in working with that tradition that I chose to continue interpreting it through that lens. So then I got kind of interested in that. Now, fast forward a couple of years, I'm going on this artist retreat to this really amazing artist residency up in New Hampshire called the Star and Snake. And it's specifically for artists whose work has esoteric or occult influences. And we go away for a couple of weeks and we all live and create together in this hundred year old church up in New Hampshire. And I've been making notes towards a book length poem for about a year or two now that has nothing to do with Merkaba literature or anything. It's actually a book length love poem to Jean Genet. Mm. And I've been making all these notes and I've got all these lines in this language and I'm, I'm ready to assemble it and turn it into my next book. And I'm packing the night before star and snake and I can't find that journal. It's lost. Mm. And I am devastated because I've never gone on an artist retreat before. It was a really special thing for me to really just unplug and say, I'm not going to deal with work or family or any other obligations. These two weeks are for me to create 24 hours a day. And I was just devastated because I'm about to leave and I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what book I'm going to write anymore. Wow. And I still haven't found that journal. That journal's gone. I'm about to make the stupidest <laughs> joke, but did a thief take it? Okay, I'm <laughs> oh, right. so done. I'm so sorry. <laughs> thief's journal, yes. You're the first person to make that joke. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> so 
my wife had to talk me off a ledge. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to go. I'm just not going to go. I don't know. <laughs> She's like, just go use it as an opportunity to create something new. And that's going to be amazing. And so I did. And I got up there and I started kind of just feeling my way into the residency. I was like, all right, well, I mean, I know how to create something from nothing. I've been writing from trans states for a long time. And I ended up using the Kabbalah as a kind of scaffolding or vessel upon which I was able to give form to these amorphous mystical experiences. And that in turn enabled me to develop a kind of narrative structure. And like I said, I did this because I'm Jewish and I'm interested in working in that tradition. And also because of the materials and people that were available to me at the time of this ascent at the Star and Snake, there were all these other artists who had actually a lot more knowledge about Kabbalah than I did at that time. So I'm having conversations with them and Natan, who's one of the hosts is like giving me these books to read. <laughs> and I was like, all right, a spiritual experience does not make a spiritual life. So just because I had this vision of the Merkaba doesn't mean anything unless I'm able to really dwell in it. And that's what I set out to do over the next couple of weeks at Star and Snake. And I would get up at dawn, like before anyone, we're artists there, everyone's like partying late and sleeping till noon. (laughs) But, but I'm getting up at dawn. (laughs) Um, And I, I was sleeping in a bedroom in the basement and I would literally come up from the sub basement level up through the house walk through the chapel, go up like three more flights of stairs, then climb up a little ladder up into the little tower that's like six foot by six foot room at the top of this church. And I would just meditate and write and read all day long. And then I would come down and then Kay, who's one of the other hosts, she ended up giving me this long scroll of paper that I could write on. And I would then come downstairs at the end of the night and transcribe what that day's work onto this long scroll that ended up being like a couple hundred yards long. Wow. And that's how this book came to be. Oh, how beautiful. And I assume you still have the original scroll. I do. Yeah. (laughs) Rolled up and tucked away in my closet. Mm, What a precious, precious object. And it's so illuminating to actually envision you like coming from the depths and physically (laughs) like climbing up to the highest promontory that you can find because that motion is so evident throughout the poem and it's not just a straight ascent upward in the poem and nor was it in the writing of it, you'd have to go up and then you went back down and up and back down again. And it really makes me think of how this balance of the opposites is such a great, I don't know, theme, a motif, key, secret to this Mm -hmm. whole thing is by which I mean, in alchemy, there's that phrase as above, so below. I mean, certainly in every mystical tradition, we can think of there's a balance of life and death and darkness and light. And interestingly enough, I was doing this presentation on Remedios Varro Mm. this past week, and she kept using the motif of the magician card from the tarot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for those listening who may not be able to picture it, one of the magician's arms is always up and one of the magician's arms is always down. And you'll find that same gesture in the whirling dervishes, in Sufi Mm -hmm. mysticism, I mean, Baphomet, 
that the goat headed yeah. God like has the yeah. same position where you're kind of you, the human being or material entity, you're almost forming this circuit between the above and the below or whatever, you know, binary or duality you can imagine. And it is yeah. this kind of circuitry that goes up and down and up and down again. And you certainly do that in the poem. Because I remember when I first read it, I thought we were just going to keep ascending and ascending and ascending. <laughs> and in fact, yeah. you know, you start us in earth and then we go up to air and then we're back down to water and then we're yeah. up in fire. And were you mapping this in your mind as well as you were writing this or was it kind of a retrospective revelation? Yeah, I should say that I think for a long time, my work has often dealt with polarities and contrasts. I think there's a lot of light and dark in the imagery in my last book. But for this particular book, I took that structure based on the tree of life and the four material worlds that I mentioned before. And as you go from the lowest Sephirot to the highest, you go through the material worlds that start with earth, then air, then water, and then above water is the abyss. And then after that, you reach fire. I mean, it wasn't intuitive to me, but it presented a beautifully surreal way of imagining an upward journey that passes through water up into the abyss that's above the sky and then into fire. And to do that, I actually had to sort of find and create all sorts of somatic rituals for myself. Once I had keyed into that, this is what I was going to do. And I was actually basically attempting a traditional <laughs> ascent in that Hecalot literature. I knew, okay, well, this day is going to be earth and this day is going to be water and this day is going to be air and I would take breaks in between. But I created these rituals to put me in touch with those elements. And like, for instance, for earth, I would walk around barefoot for hours. When I came to water, I actually went down early in dawn down to the lake and jumped in the water. <laughs> it was sort of like this mikvah moment mm. and just finding ways to put myself in touch with those elements. And then also burning herbs. I, there was one of the artists there was working with all sorts of herbs and she would create tinctures for me or things for me to smoke that weren't psychedelic, but they were like, oh, this, you know, these two things are going to help give you air and these are going to help. So I was doing all sorts of stuff. But the thing that was really interesting about it was that I was using a more intuitive quote unquote, low magic approach to make a journey that is quote unquote, high magic. Yes. And I did that for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that I had the time constraint, so I can't become like this seventh level mage in two weeks that understands the recombinations of the 27 names for God and the Tetragrammaton or whatever. <laughs> but Pretty um, ambitious. <laughs> but I also did it because, I, as I mentioned before, I've always been a kind of spiritual anarchist. And that's just my personality. I mean, maybe it's I'm, I'm an Aries or whatever. I just jump right in. I, I buy a thing. I throw out the instruction booklet, and then I just figure out how to use it. And that's kind of how I was approaching this ascent was I was like, all right, earth, earth, I can do this. You know, I don't need to know the 27 names for God. I'm going to invent my own 27 names for God, in fact. And that's what I do in the book. Mm -hmm. And those 27 names that I write in the book are equally valid to me. That's the radical, the, the mystical tradition. Someone invented those when they had their ascent, you know, 3000 years exactly. ago. Exactly. So, exactly. It feels important to me, I think, uh, if you'll permit me to digress a little bit, in the kind of moment we are in culture right now as well, this idea of low magic, 
there's always this sort of pejorative thing about low and it being lesser in some way than high magic. And low magic is usually associated with summoning to meet earthly pursuits and high magic is unification with the Godhead. And I don't think it has to be that polarity there. And also the other thing, the reason why I say it's important cultural context right now is traditionally speaking, women and witches are low magic practitioners and men and magicians are high magic practitioners, you know, and there's something that's always been kind of feels patriarchal to me in a way. So yeah, and I'll just if I can add on, well, high magic, I usually associate with books and learning and scholarship and low magic is more like intuition or what's passed down orally or what you just kind of learn from the earth or certain spirits of the land. And to your point, book magic is supposed to be better or, you know, more educated. So th- again, there is that implied, certainly misogyny, um, but also classism, I think, too. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just think as we see a new wave of practitioners, we should be examining this. I mean, let's make our magic intersectional, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And can there be a non-hierarchical, intuitive, personally mystical approach to theurgy that isn't mediated by any sort of secret knowledge or expensive book? You know, mystery schools, by their very nature, are often patriarchal, and that's why we see so many men at the heads of them concentrating authority over others' experience of the divine. And so if I was going to attempt this ascent, I wanted to do it as the spiritual anarchist that I am. And that's why I did it with, you know, essentially all this low magic. I love it. Jonica, I sincerely wish I could talk to you for like 18 (laughs) more hours. (laughs) We should go in a shamanic state and just intellectually commune for a while. But unfortunately, the format of this show is such (laughs) that we must wind down. For final thoughts, I do want to mention very quickly that in addition to writing your own brilliant work, you head up an imprint called Black Ocean in which you have, well, why don't you tell us, what is Black Ocean? (laughs) Yeah, Black Ocean's been around for almost 15 years. We publish mostly poetry little bit of fiction and nonfiction, but mostly poetry. I would say on the aesthetic spectrum, it tends toward the dark and surreal. And the, the way I came up with the name Black Ocean is I wanted something that was instantly evocative, instantly recognizable, created an image in the mind of the audience. And I had been having recurring dreams since a child of standing at the precipice of these large sort of fathomless bodies of water with sort of leviathan sea creatures lurking just beneath the surface. And I had one of these dreams when I was trying to name the press. And I woke up from the dream and I just said, Black Ocean. That's the name of the press. And and in those dreams, I always had a sense of dread and awe looking at the out at that water. And I wanted to publish books that create a sense of dread and awe in people. Ah. And you do, and you have. (laughs) Um, Some of my other favorite poets are published by you. That said, your own books are not published by Black Ocean. Your last two are out on Third Man Books, which some folks might recognize as Jack White's imprint. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. In um, 
2015, they published The Truth Is We Are Perfect, and that was their first single author title. So I was their first author. Amazing. Well, yeah. I feel like they really kicked it off right with you. My goodness, what a... I'm going to use the word christening. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been a great relationship. I mean, I'm not your traditional poet, and I don't go on your traditional book tour. And they've really been able to support me as a band that hits the road and <laughs> and tours. So they've been really wonderful to me. And speaking of tour, where can people find out more information about your upcoming tour, about this book? We should say this book comes out on April 23rd, um, which right. is very, very soon. So be sure to yeah. pre-order it or order it as the case may be <laughs> whenever you're listening to this. Um, but where else can people go to find out more about everything you do? For the book itself, they can get it on Amazon or they can go to Third Man Records, their website, they sell it directly. Uh, eventually, I'll also be selling copies directly on my website, which is probably going to be the best source of information for anyone. It's just my name, com, And I have updated tour calendars there. I have links to find my book on everywhere on the internet. When the Atlas Obscura tour goes live, I think they'll have some information on their website. But again, it'll be also on mine. So that's probably the best place to find the tour information. And then... Also, if people are just kind of interested in following what I'm reading, I do have a Goodreads, but I'm on Instagram. And aside from being a literature lover, I'm kind of just a book fetishist. And I love posting pictures of books that just feel wonderful to me as physical objects or artifacts. So if you want to find me on Instagram, I'm always posting pictures of whatever occult or science fiction or poetry book I'm reading at the moment. And and I tend to post tour updates there too. So right on. That's perfect. And I can absolutely attest to not only your wonderful Instagram page with all the beautiful books <laughs> that you feature, but Black Ocean, I mean the design behind the books on your I'm going to call it a press. Is that yeah. the right word on your yeah. press? They're just such beautiful objects too. So you certainly you. carry that through in your own work. Jonica, we do have to descend now <laughs> back <laughs> yeah. to the material realm. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure and an honor as always. Thanks so much for having me. This is, it's been great to talk with you about the book and um, we can talk more on the astral plane. <laughs> <laughs> I will meet you there. <laughs> Great. Thank you. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Jonica Stuckey for sharing his wordcraft and his spellcraft. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of glittery stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And check out my Witch Emoji for iPhone by going to WitchEmoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. 
And please consider pre-ordering my book, Waking the Witch, which is out on June 4th of this year. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.